when the anxieties that come with a commute and a cubicle just got to be too much for Kim Dynan, she told her husband, we're leaving. I came home one day and I told my husband that I thought that we should, you know, sell our house and everything we owned, quit our jobs and take an open-ended trip around the world. <laughs> Coming up, find out how one American couple bought the time to enjoy the world and see what else it has to offer. Singer Buffy St. Marie tells us how her travels across Canada, the U.S., and abroad have stoked her creativity and taught her a lot about humanity from the 1960s till today. Just to continually grow and be informed by the people that you happen to run into in all these different countries, it really gives you a, it gives me a sense of forgiveness for human frailty. And we hear from listeners hoping to travel again soon with questions and memories to share. Come along for the adventure in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. She first caught the ear of the Greenwich Village folk music scene back in 1964. But LBJ and Nixon got her music blacklisted from commercial radio in the U.S. because she opposed the Vietnam War. Today, Buffy St. Marie is still going strong. In just a bit, we'll revisit the conversation we had with Buffy when her album Medicine Songs first came out. She'll tell us about what her travels have shown her as we hear how her prophetic voice is all the more relevant today. Plus, Kim Dynan explains how she and her husband took a gap year, three years actually, to explore the world before settling down. That's a little later in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start by checking in with you, our listeners, at 877-333-RICK. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. While we all have questions about making travel reservations during a pandemic, I think we can keep stoking our travel dreams so that we're ready to enjoy the world when it's safe to travel again. And Margaret's calling in from Toronto. Hey, Margaret, thanks for the call. Where are your travel dreams taking you lately? Actually, this year, nowhere. Last year, I was in Italy and the year before Portugal. But uh, next trip, I hope to go to Portugal again. Um, I've been to Portugal twice. I went in uh, 2014 just with some friends on my own. We stayed in Lisbon the whole time and, you know, did little day trips out and stuff like that. Right. In 2018, I somehow combined a tour and um, a Douro river cruise. Mm -hmm. So I flew into Lisbon, you know, up to Porto, up and down the river and back. But I really haven't seen the south part of um, Portugal, and I think that might be nice just to do a kind of a relaxing trip down there. Maybe, I don't know if they have anything like agroturismos or, you know, but I was just thinking I'd like to see the beach, which I haven't seen. Oh, yeah. Well, first yeah. of all, when you did the Douro River, Margaret, did you do Porto adequately, the, the city that the river flows to? I don't know if I did it adequately, but I think mm -hmm. I was there five nights. So oh, I was, okay. uh, yeah, you know, I got to the bookstore and, uh, you know, a little little cruise on the river um, that was just, you know, around uh, yeah. the port. Yeah, you've done what most people would do on their first couple of trips to Portugal. Of course, you you go to the big city first, Lisbon, and that's always great. I can go back to Lisbon for the rest of my life. And then you did the Douro River Valley, which is sort of like the Rhine River with more sunshine and no castles, you know. It's uh, surrounded by <laughs> vineyards, and they've got a wonderful wine culture. And it goes down mm -hmm. to, and the famous port wine ends up in Porto to age in these wonderful lodges, these port lodges along the riverbank. I love Porto in the sense that it's sort of a rough-and-tumble industrial little sister to Lisbon, and it's sort of coming in its own. It's got that sort of feisty pride and spirit. But you've missed, uh, I think you've missed a couple of nice sights in the middle there. One of them is Coimbra. 
in uh, Coimbra is the old, um, the sort of venerable university town that you might want to check out. But you're talking about going south, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So uh, the Algarve is the south coast of Portugal. And to me, it's like the untouristy version of the Costa del Sol in Spain. And I just love the Algarve. You can, with a rental car, you could explore the whole thing from the border of Spain all the way to Cape Sagres, which is the sort of southwest tip of Europe. And then the sort of rough-and-tumble, arid uh, interior is cowboy country in Portugal, and that's called Alentejo. That's not charming and, and lay on the beach. It's, it's really pretty um, sparse and, and dramatic. And the capital city there is Evora, E-V-O-R-A. So those are the highlights of southern Portugal. Evora as the capital of the Alentejo, and then down to the south coast. And along the south coast, your big question is, are you going to stay in a resort, or are you going to go and find a little small town? And you can make a case for both. Um, you know, Lagos is a, is a great town. It's a small-time resort, but it's the resort, I think, for a lot of us on the south coast of Portugal. But I like to go to the little towns, Tavira, and there's uh, my favorite is Salema, really close to the southwest tip. Sounds good. Do you know if they do agroturismos um, in Portugal, sort of the way they do them in Italy, where you can go and stay for a few days? Yeah, you can stay in a, in a farmhouse in the countryside. When I go in through Portugal, we, we visit farmhouses to see the cork industry. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of small businesses uh, who are struggling to make ends meet. You might have seen them up on the Douro River. These are vineyards, you know, that uh, also open up their rooms to travelers and they let you sleep there. So it gives you a little slice of country life. Probably not on the south coast. The south coast, it's really private rooms that are just in the towns that they've decided they can make a lot more money renting to tourists than to locals. So I hope that helps you out. That does. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. Have a great time. We have an email from Joan in Bourbonnais, Illinois. And Joan writes, My family will be traveling in Italy next year. My son has serious food allergies, peanuts, tree nuts, and shellfish. We have a written card explaining his allergies that we'll travel with, but we're concerned about his safety when we go out and eat. In England a few years ago, our hotel was really helpful working with us, but it was challenging for him to eat safely elsewhere. We ate half our dinners at McDonald's, which has great information about allergens and all their food. What are your tips on food allergies when traveling in Italy? Well, Joan, I think that you're smart to have a piece of paper, a little 3 by 5 card with your you know, food concerns very clearly written by a local person in the local language and make it really clear that this is not a wish on your part. This is a, a life or death issue. Also, uh, remember that with each year, more and more modern restaurants have all of the information printed on their menus. One great thing about Italy is it's not as complex of a mix. Italians are really into the ingredients, and it's quite easy when you go to an Italian restaurant to know what the ingredients are in your food as opposed to another country that might have a more complicated kind of cuisine. So I think you need a phrase book, you need the clear information translated by a local, and you need to go to modern restaurants that have clear information on their menus. Last option fast food places. You don't need to go to American fast food places, but uh, there's a lot of international fast food places that are as reliable as McDonald's in that regard. We're checking in with you, our listeners, right now on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Lyra is calling in from Portland, Oregon. Lyra, thanks for your call. Sure. So um, my partner Andy and I are planning a trip to Southeast Asia. We're planning to go to Laos, and I'm contemplating Burma. And with the ethnic cleansing that's happening right now, we're feeling really ethically conflicted about how to travel responsibly in an area that 
is experiencing human rights violations and, frankly, whether we should go at all. You know, Lyra, that is a very good concern. Do you want to go to a country and support it with your vacation dollars that's doing something that you think is unethical and uh, violating human rights or whatever you care about? And I've been dealing with this in different ways for 20 or 30 years with my travels and so on. And I've always felt that, no, I don't want to support this or that activity. But what trumps me going into a country and contributing to their economy that might be used in an improper way is the value of me connecting with local people in a struggling country that really wants to get the word out about what's going on. And if you go to Turkey when they're cranking down on this ethnic group and you don't agree with it, or when you go to Russia when they're homophobic and they're uh, beating up gay people in the streets, you are providing an opportunity to learn firsthand from people in that situation and then take it home with you and weave that into your global outlook. And I just really think, especially for a person who is as ethical as somebody who would worry about the ethics of traveling there, that it is a real beautiful value to go to that country, learn about the issue firsthand, and then come home and talk about it. So I would say, by going to Myanmar, you are not promoting their uh, human rights abuses. You're going there and humanizing the situation and coming back to the most powerful country in the world and making it part of your everyday discourse. I think it's a positive thing. Generally, the way we travel is also that we tend to stay in locally owned hotels and eat in local restaurants and try to give Mm -hmm. as much of our money as we can right to the local people. Do you have any suggestions about any other ways to do that well, to make sure that our tourist dollars do go to the people that we're interested in supporting and not to the government or or larger corporations? Yeah, I think that's a very important issue, and uh, I guess there's two dimensions to that. You're going to go to a country and spend a substantial amount of money. It could be spent at an international hotel, and then the money goes from the developing world into the first world, and it doesn't help that country. Or you could spend your money in a way where it stays in that country, but it goes to the wrong uh, kind of people within that country or it goes to the people you want to support. So there's three different ways to consume. In the case of Myanmar, I guess the issue you're talking about is how can you go there and help the people without helping the forces that, that are abusing human rights? It's just the same old story. When you eat at a mom-and-pop restaurant, when you stay in a mom-and-pop guest house, when you hire local guides, that money is going directly into local families. So just, uh, you know, spend money close to the ground over there. Uh, The less you spend in advance, the better. Mm -hmm. I I think you can assume that you can play it by ear within Myanmar and remember that uh, the least expensive the private guides are, the more valuable they are because it would cost you in London for one day for the cost of a guide. You could get a great guide in Myanmar for a whole week and, and you would be doing a huge benefit to that guide by hiring him and give him that gig. And also you'd have a local person who then you could um, see as a teacher locally in a sounding board, and then you would be able to sort out all the complicated and seemingly contradictory things that you're experiencing, and you go home with a much more uh, valuable understanding of of what are the issues in Myanmar and and what are the forces behind this and and that injustice. And I find that is really what uh, travel with with a purpose is all about. So enjoy the opportunity to go there. Enjoy the, the buying power that you've got and make a point that uh, the money that you do spend is going to go into individuals rather than, than big um, corporate forces. Great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your input. Hey, best wishes on that trip, and uh, when, you're, when you're done, uh, give us a ring. 
Thanks very much, Rick. And we got an email from Jeff in Brunswick, Georgia. And Jeff writes, How can one make the most of a moment when they're surrounded by hordes of tourists who walk in front of you, crowd all around what you came so far to see, endlessly taking selfies with their selfie sticks? Jeff, I can commiserate with you. It is just when you get yourself in the wrong spot at the wrong time, it's a forced of, I think, rude tourists who seem to be ignoring you and crowding right to the front with their cameras raised high to get those, you know, selfie shots. I would say the key is to recognize that more and more huge crowds are coming in off of the cruise ships and off of uh, tour groups, and they go during this peak time from 10 till 4. Get an early start or be out late and, you know, see your sites that are going to be congested and suffer the most right off the bat or at the end of the day. I love going at the end of the day. If you go to the Acropolis and you go up to the Acropolis uh, to see the Parthenon in the middle of the day, it's just going to be mobbed because all the cruise groups are there. But when I think of the Acropolis and the Parthenon, it, it kind of comes with the soundtrack. I can hear the whistle of the guard blowing his whistle and telling me, Mr., we're closed, it's time to go. I get that beautiful last half an hour when all the people are gone and I am literally all alone with the wonders of the Greek Golden Age. So go early or go late or go to places that aren't so touristy. We'll learn how a simple yellow envelope helped Kim Dynan leave behind her routine and experience the world in just a bit. But first, singing legend Buffy St. Marie tells us how her view of the world has been shaped by the people she meets in her travels. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Buffy St. Marie is our special guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. Buffy is a legendary Native American singer-songwriter and an activist in Canada and in the United States. Today, with a home on a ranch in Hawaii and a demanding touring schedule, she keeps a foot firmly planted on both sides of the U.S.-Canadian border. She's won dozens of awards and honors for her music and in recognition of her advocacy for grassroots Native communities and for the environment. Her international fan base will be delighted to know that she's just released a new album called Medicine Songs. Her story and the causes she advocates can inspire us to cultivate our relationships with people both at home and in our travels. Buffy St. Marie, thanks for joining us. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing great, and uh, I am just really inspired by people who keep producing, continually creative and engaged in the world. And your debut album was, what, back in 1964? And now, 50 it years was. later, you got another album. <laughs> well, there's a lot of albums in between and a whole lot of travel. <laughs> well, that's right. So you're constantly touring and uh, working hard. Why are you working so hard, and uh, what's exciting for you about the new album? Well, you know, Medicine Songs is really a collection of my activist songs. Not all protest songs, but activist songs. Songs like You Got to Run and Star Walker, Soldier Blue, Carry It On are not protest songs. They're like the opposite, but we don't really have a, a name for them. Hmm. And also, I've re-recorded new versions of a lot of songs that people never got to hear, either because uh, they were blacklisted in the 60s and 70s during the Johnson and Nixon administrations, or because they were just, you know, they weren't even born yet. So these are songs of kind of the things that happen cyclically. I think things that go back to even before the Old Testament, you know, songs hmm. about uh, oppression, inequity, things that we want to change, you know, war. So some of them are the, you know, the protest songs that people yeah. would know from me, like Universal Soldier. You're known as a lot of things, a Canadian, a Native American. You've been dubbed an indigenous musician, an icon, a, a disruptor of the status quo. What do you think of yourself? How do you like to be known? Oh, gosh. 
I'm kind of an overgrown kindergarten kid. <laughs> I'm a natural musician. I never have been able to learn how to read music, although I tried three times, and finally I found out that I'm actually dyslexic in music, and who ever heard of that? But, you know, you're talking about me as an indigenous person and all. My biggest songs have been about everybody. The songs that have made me enough money to, to support a career as an activist person have been love songs, Up Where We Belong, you know, uh-huh. won me an Academy Award. It was uh, the theme song uh, for the score and the song to An Officer and a Gentleman. And Until It's Time for You to Go, which was recorded by, you know, everybody, Sonny and Cher and Bobby Darin and Roberta Flack and Elvis Presley and Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops Orchestra and Barbara Streisand. Everybody recorded that song. And yet most people don't associate it with me because the writer of a pop song sometimes doesn't get a, a lot of news about it. You know, there's so many different kinds of music and so many fans. Uh, you're just glad that people are enjoying it's it. Not, that's it, isn't it? It just must be gratifying that people choose to listen to your music, that it, it resonates it, with it's, people. It's very exciting. And, I mean, since you're all about travel, I've had the great, great privilege of traveling all over the world. I mean, uh, I was playing in Hong Kong and Australia and all over Canada, the U.S., and all over Europe. And um, just to continually grow and be informed by the people that you happen to run into in all these different countries, it really gives you a, it gives me a sense of forgiveness for <laughs> human frailty, because most people are only reading the headlines and the news of their mm-hmm. own countries. But when you're lucky enough to travel, you get to kind of read between the headlines of any one country and any one genre of music. You realize, mm-hmm. oh, there's, there's more to it than just what my family may have been listening to while I was growing up. Buffy St. Marie is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her latest album, Medicine Songs, features new material plus updates on many of her classic anthems. It includes a duet with Inuit singer Tanya Tagak on You Got to Run. You'll find lyrics to her songs at BuffyStMarie.com, and that's spelled S-A-I-N-T-E-Marie. Buffy, you have a fascinating life story that it seems shaped your music and and message in a lot of ways. Can you just give us a quick thumbnail bio about your childhood and your upbringing and how that contributed to your life as a singer-songwriter? Well, I was born someplace. I was adopted and raised in Maine and Massachusetts. I uh, believe I was probably born in Canada. In my late teens, I was reconnected with people in Saskatchewan who may or may not be my blood family, but they became my family. We've been real close ever since. I was a natural musician from the time I was three. I was in love with Tchaikovsky, but I flunked music in school, and I could go home and play fake Tchaikovsky. I've always been able to do that. So uh, I went to the University of Massachusetts on a trial basis. My mom said, you know, you really need to get out of this place. Uh, Try one semester of college, and if you don't like it, you come home. But I loved it. 
So I thought I was going to be a veterinarian, but then I found out, "Mm -mm, no, I guess I'm more of a pet lover. I was not a scientist or a chemistry major. I majored in Oriental philosophy and religion because I just plain loved to hear about people's personal experiences with the Creator wherever on the planet they came from. That's interesting because you do have a Cree heritage. Uh huh. Does that have any impact on your personal spirituality? Because when you get a degree, you, you sort of celebrate multicultural spirituality, I would think. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're a Bible reader, it says in the Bible, it says something that I love. It says, we're made in the image of the Creator. And so for me, that has never meant religion or churches or, you know, Jesus T-shirts or, you know, <laughs> passing the hat for the new pavement on the church. For me, that's always meant that uh, we're connected to the Creator, you know. Each one of us is connected to the Creator. And as a creative person, it was really my green light for creativity. And as a grown-up, that's carried through wherever I've traveled in the world, you know. We create our, our families. We create our communities and our neighborhoods. We create our songs. We create our books and our paintings. We create our world. But there are so many people who are intent, I think, on getting us to work for them in their plantation, you know, when Uh we're emerging from college, that many of us kind of miss the boat on our own creativity. So for me, creativity is kind of, in a way, it's part of my religious faith. I I do believe, I believe that we can be creating our future for real and that the creator himself, herself, itself continues to evolve as we create uh, new ways, new patterns of behavior. I think that we can just keep getting better and better no matter how young or how old we are. So when you think of God, or whatever you want to call God, if you believe in a creator, he created us all, so we're all children of God, if you want to put it that way. And it's just empowering to get out there and get to know the family. And then to celebrate the creator, it might be just being creative yourself. That sounds like what you're saying. Doing a creative thing, you become a, a conduit of God in a way. I think so. and But there's also the idea of the creation. See, I think we're a part of the creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creation itself. And you were asking about Cree people and, or indigenous people in terms of religion. We didn't have religion as, you know, like a corporate religion. No, we, we believed in the creator, in the creation itself, and all of the animals and the plants and the stars and the cosmos. The entire forever of God is the creation. And we're part of it. You know, Buffy, I was thinking as I was anticipating our conversation about your Native American or or indigenous heritage and how it relates to nomads. Because in my travels, I've really gained an interest in the embattled nomadic communities all over this planet. And I would think uh, Indians and Eskimos and Kurds and Bedouins all would have an empathy for each other because they have cultures that don't want to be fenced in. They want to be roaming about. Have you thought much Mm -hmm. about that in your travels? Well, a little bit, but I should point out that historically in North America, most people lived in permanent settlements. Okay, so Native Americans weren't nomadic like you might think of as Bedouins or or Eskimos. Well, some people were. Uh Some people were, but there's no such thing as Native Americans. We were many, many different nations. And some people were genuinely nomadic. They truly were. Some people would have villages in the summer, and then they would move to another place in the winter. Others were nomadic all the time, but most Native American people 
lived in permanent villages, big houses with big posts in the Northwest Coast. Okay. The Iroquois Confederacy were living in permanent villages, using Quonset huts. Hmm. Yeah, when I was running the Cradle Board Teaching Project, we did a lot, even with little kids, in letting them know about all the different styles of housing uh-huh. that people had. And the one thing that you can say about nomadic people, or let's say indigenous people throughout the world, so we include not only nomadic people, but indigenous people everywhere, is that the reason that we have survived is because of common sense, because we discovered you know, what today we would call science. We, we knew the difference between uh, real things that we would discover through experimentation and repetition. You have to be able to repeat the experiment in order to know that it's real. For instance, if you see that certain berries are ripening at a certain time of year, you know that you can expect the buffalo in another two weeks Ah. in a certain place. So I think that people tend to shortchange the indigenous people of the world from long ago and from today. No, no, no. The reason we have survived is because Mm. we have been practical. We've used common sense. There's a wisdom um, Yeah, there's a wisdom and a very practicality. It's a wisdom that in a lot of cases, I would imagine, has been lost. In fact, that sounds like you're ready to write a guidebook to Native American (laughs) culture. Wouldn't that be good? I'd love to write the foreword to that. Buffy, if you were going to write a guidebook to uh, indigenous culture in the Americas, where would you send people? What lessons could we learn? Oh, my gosh. There have been some really good things already written. For instance, uh, if you want to read a great book that's kind of, it's a skinny little yellow paperback. Uh It's called Indian Givers. It'll catch you up on all the things that your teacher never told you. Really, really nice information, wonderful information. It's by Jack Weatherford, Indian Givers. Okay. That'd be the one that... Uh, Indian that Givers. I'd, I'd, all right. It's a place to start. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Buffy St. Marie, and uh, she's got a new album out called Medicine Songs. Now, you say Indian Givers. I'm, I'm just curious, because uh, I, I don't like to be overly politically correct, but I don't want to be careless either. What is the um, current thinking about Indian First Nation, Native American, as an indigenous American, if somebody refers to something as Indian this or Indian that, what do you think? Well, it can be quite specific, but Mm -hmm. in general, I mean, when we're sitting around talking amongst ourselves, Mm -hmm. we kind of use it interchangeably. A lot of people will still use the word Indian in the U.S. Does it offend you or is it the context that matters? It doesn't offend me. No, I don't care what you call me as long as you call me. (laughs) (laughs) In Canada, very often people will say indigenous or we'll say Aboriginal, or Ah. we'll say First Nations, which Mm -hmm. is quite specific to people in Canada. But, uh, no, I don't get offended uh, one way or the other. And if you were a tour guide or a guidebook writer and you wanted to send somebody from our generation that had really no empathy for uh, or appreciation for Native American culture, where do you look for for a collection of actual artifacts? And uh, where would you travel to be inspired? Well, it's a little off the money on your question, but I'm a bibliaholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I read all the time, and I also listen to a lot of audiobooks. There's a great series uh, on the great courses. It's called Lost Worlds of South America. And I'm telling you, it is so enlightening to find out about the civilizations that go way back, yeah. long, thousands of years before the Incas. Most mm. people only know about the Incas and the Mayans mm-hmm. and the Aztecs. But there were civilizations... Big city-states, you know, 250,000 people that had no war. You cannot find battlements or weapons or mass graves. These people were existing without war. Hmm. When you actually get into studying 
ancient civilizations or the wisdom of even current civilizations like the Iroquois Confederacy, who are now mm -hmm. mostly on the Canadian-U.S. Uh, border around New York, that area. Mm -hmm. um, you find people who were, believe it or not, uh, using 100% of the human brain, not just the male half, mm -hmm. but they were also dependent upon female wisdom. And, you know, you couldn't have a war unless you had permission of the clan mothers who are not going to get too excited about a little um, you know, backyard uh, pissing match. <laughs> <laughs> also, legislators would be sent in by the clan mothers. So they were using 100% of uh, brain power, and they kept the peace for 1,100 years. And if I'm not mistaken, that's a record. The wow. Greeks didn't do that. You're a um, Canadian indigenous, so you would be referred to as First Nation in Canada, First Nations. <laughs> What do you, yeah. uh, what's your take on how Canada... Because every time I go to Canada, I'm so impressed by the respect they give for their indigenous peoples. Um, it's much more high profile, it seems, than in the United States. How is your take on uh, the treatment of uh, indigenous peoples on both sides of the border? Well, I think the farther south you get, the more difficult it is, yeah? Mm -hmm. So in Canada, I feel as though we're way, way ahead of the U.S. Mm -hmm. I mean, but that does not mean that Canada does not have a shameful right. past... Yeah. The legacy of residential schools and slavery in Canada mm -hmm. is, uh, I mean, we don't even talk about indigenous slavery mm. or residential schools in the U.S. When you hear the word slavery, we all think of, you know, African people in chains, which well, is horrible, as yeah. horrible as it was. It was going on long before and long after mm. African people were imported at the request of the son of Christopher Columbus, Diego Columbus. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Buffy St. Marie. Buffy's new album is called Medicine Songs, always with a thought-provoking uh, voice to call us to a higher sort of sensibility and values. Buffy, you were just iconic back in the 1960s when civil rights was such a big deal. There's a need for that kind of voice today. I'd like to just wrap things up if you have just a comment on things that you thought were really important back in the 60s that, that we really need to be mindful of as, as we are faced with some amazing challenges uh, in our times. Well, I was privileged to live in the 60s. I really was. And yet you may have noticed, if you ever checked, I was absent during most of the big civil rights rallies. I was real good friends with Muhammad Ali, Stokely Carmichael, Dick Gregory. I brought Dick Gregory to my reservation in Saskatchewan mm. uh, in the 60s. And, you know, he had never seen poverty and injustice like that. He had never really thought about it. He was crying in the airplane on the way home. But mm. he was very glad to have found out. So when everybody else was at the big photo ops and the giant rallies, which were so important in the 1960s having to do with civil rights, I was trying to cover the base that nobody else was covering, which was in Indian country. Mm. And there weren't a lot of celebrities at the time helping us out. Later mm -hmm. on, Marlon Brando and Jane Fonda tried to help. But eventually, we have to understand that even if it's me, you know, a celebrity showing up sometimes will distract and detract from the actual issue that local people are trying to solve. So mm -hmm. I've always tried to be very careful about that. Mm. I am covering those bases, and in song, those were the bases I was covering too. So, you know, there was a time when we thought that there'd never be an end to slavery, that women would never get the vote, that you'd never stop men from smoking on airplanes, you know, mm -hmm. that a Native American religion would never become legal. But all those things have happened. So in my perspective, you never, ever can give up hope. There are people doing good work today. There's always something to learn. So if you want to know about Native America or something else, 
don't be afraid to try and find out. The information is there. You might have to dig a little, but, you know, good for you that you have the get up and go to be curious and to want to make the world a better place. From where you are right now, it seems like it's all uphill and it'll take forever. But looking back on my 50 years of traveling around as a singer and an educator, I've seen tremendous progress, and I thank everybody who has helped with that. You know, just keep it going. Buffy St. Marie, you're an inspiration back in the 60s, and you are an inspiration today. Thanks so much, and keep on traveling and keep on singing. Thank you, too, Rick. There's more with Buffy St. Marie in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Next, author Kim Dynan tells us how she changed her life to become a global nomad and how you can do it too. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Kim Dynan will tell you, whatever your dream is, now is the time to pursue it. A few years ago, she quit her job and convinced her husband to sell all their stuff. The idea was to use what little money they had to buy themselves time time to travel the world. In her book, The Yellow Envelope, Kim explains how she overcame her anxieties, left what's familiar behind, and turned her daydreams into a life-changing global adventure, one that she thinks you could try too. Kim, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You basically just did this sort of classic, sold everything and hit the road, and you weren't even 30. What was your life like, and why'd you end up doing that? You know, when I was a little bit younger in college, in high school, I had always dreamed of traveling and seeing the world, but I didn't have the means to do it at the time. And I also always wanted to be a writer. But what ended up happening was that after college, I got a job and then I got another job and I got married and bought a house and kind of followed the very traditional path. And it was a really wonderful life. We lived in a city that we loved, my husband and I. We had jobs that we cared about, we loved our neighborhood, and yet there was just something in me that realized that I had put all of my dreams on Mm -hmm. the back burner. And, you know, I really kind of ignored that feeling for a while because it's not really convenient to, you know, want to do something so different than the path that you're currently on. But eventually I just kind of couldn't ignore it. And so I, I came home one day and I told my husband that, I thought that we should sell our house and everything we owned, quit our jobs, and take an open-ended trip around the world. How did he come around to it? He knew how badly I wanted to do it because this wasn't like we came. I came home one day and we left the next. It was a three-year process to save the money and get rid of everything. And um, I think he really believed in me that knew I needed to do this. And and so he agreed to come along for the ride. But, you know, he was pretty skeptical even Hmm. as he first stepped on that plane. But, I mean, he knew you were having anxiety. You wrote about this in The Yellow Envelope. You're having actually having anxiety attacks in your cubicle. You know, life is passing me by. I'm almost 30. It wasn't even an age thing. It was more that I felt like I had woken up in the morning and dressed in somebody else's skin. I just Hmm. wasn't living the kind of life that felt right for me. You know, I never really traveled. I hadn't been outside of the country very much. I have no idea where this wanderlust came from, but it's just always been a part of me. And I thought, you know, who am I going to be if I don't even try to do this? This is amazing, Kim, that you had not really had any major trip before. I worry about people who commit themselves to a long international trip if they've never really left home before. Was this actually your first time abroad? 
It wasn't my first time. I had spent about a week in Europe and mm -hmm. then a week in Costa Rica. So I had been outside the country, but mm -hmm. nothing like what we were about to embark on. You know, now having gone through it, I think that there are many things I didn't anticipate. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There was a huge learning curve and just a comfort. When you look back after three years of traveling, what were some of the rookie mistakes you made in the beginning that you wouldn't have made after a couple of years of travel experience? Well, first of all, we packed everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think we didn't realize that there were shopping malls and <laughs> convenience stores no mm -hmm. matter where we would go. Mm -hmm. But sort of the bigger thing was because we were going on this long trip and we had sold everything, I always sort of considered myself a minimalist. I didn't think that the things that I owned defined me. And yet when I got out there, there was sort of nothing material to represent who I was, you know, it was just me. And I was constantly meeting new people and kind of having to explain myself over and over again. And it was just very jarring to all of a sudden think, wow, you know, no one knows me at all. And yet the feeling was also so thrilling to think I can walk out of this door and I have no idea who I'm going to meet no idea where I'll go. You know, I sort of thrived on that feeling, and, and yet it took a long time to get used to. You have to have courage, don't you? Because you, you have to know that, okay, in a way you're burning some bridges, but you can, when this is all over, you can go back and, and start things up again. It is interesting, sort of initial stress and then freedom when you step away from your material possessions. You wrote about how it was stressful giving up all of your material possessions. Yeah, and I always tell everyone that fear is not a red flag because I think we have these big dreams. You know, there are so many roadblocks, so many reasons to be afraid or things to worry about. You know, I worried mm -hmm. about, I'll never find a job again. What about health insurance? What about retirement? I mean, everything. And yet that fear is not a reason to stop. You keep going. The system is intentional, almost trying to scare us into staying in the cubicle. I completely agree with you. And it's so funny because once I sort of broke free from that and I was out traveling, I thought everybody does this <laughs> because I met so many other travelers. And yet before, before I'd left, I thought that it was just the craziest thought anyone had ever had. And, <laughs> you know, had I lost my mind, but it wasn't that at all. It was just that I needed a new environment, you know, to meet other people that were thinking about the world the same way I was. So you were gone for three years. Where did you go over three years? Well, we started in South America, and so we went down through South America, and then we flew to, we did not take a, a you know, this most obvious route, and then we flew over to India, and I uh, did something called the rickshaw run, which you may have heard of, drove a rickshaw through India, into Nepal, and then parts of Southeast Asia, and then back over to Europe, and then we actually came to the U.S. for a year and spent a year camping and hiking throughout the U.S., and then down into Mexico. So hmm. we kind of followed a route of when we met people on the road, if they invited us to their houses, we would go, even if they lived in other countries. And we always said that we were rich on time, but short on mm -hmm. money. So if it was a cheaper way, but it took longer, we would take that route because we had nothing but time. It's interesting. When you have more time than money, you make different decisions than a lot of people who are working 50 weeks out of the year who have more money than time. Kim, you talked about the rickshaw run. I, actually, I haven't heard of that. What, what is that? It sounds fascinating in India. It's a race, but you can't really call it a race because there's no winner. There's a beginning and an end, and you get a three-wheeled motorized rickshaw. There are about 60 different teams of people with their own rickshaws. And then you just drive it from the start to the end. So 
myself and two other women that I had actually never met before. We got in a rickshaw hmm. and we drove 3,000 kilometers, which was, I think, about 2,000 miles through India. And it was just a beautiful experience and very messy. And our rickshaw would break down about 15 times a day. Hmm. But <laughs> India was the place that sort of taught me to to really let go and whatever happened would happen. And the people there were wonderful and constantly kind of saving us from ourselves. And what I learned in India is that, you know, if you try to control something, you know, it's not going to go your way. But if you just sort of loosen that tight grip that you probably have on the world, you know, if you've mm -hmm. been sort of in the normal nine to five rat race, mm -hmm. if you just let all of that go, then India will teach you everything you need to learn. And the people are so curious. Kim Dynan is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of The Yellow Envelope, One Gift, Three Rules, and a Life-Changing Journey Around the World. Her website is Kim Dynan, that's D-I-N-A-N dot com. Craig's listening in from Chicago and joins us on the line at 877-333-7425. Hey, Craig. Hey, Rick and Kim. It's a pleasure to hear you talk. In 1996, I was in a youth hostel in Salzburg, Austria, and there I met a Japanese traveler who was traveling across the world. I wanted to do the same, but um, I figured it was too expensive. So my alternative plan was to travel as frequently as possible. I've now been overseas 14 times. But my question is, how much do you think it would cost to go uh, around the world I came up with a figure of $25,000. Is that about right? Yep. I think that that is a really accurate number. I mean, of course, it depends on how you travel. If you are a luxury, you know, luxury travel, it's going to be more expensive, but it's cheaper to travel than it is to stay at home and pay your mortgage and all your utilities and buy all the expensive food. So realistically, $25,000 will get you around the world. And you could even do it for cheaper than that you know, if you wanted to stay in hostels and that sort of thing. So, In, in your circumstance, Kim, it was you and your husband. You're gone for three years. If you mm -hmm. were to leave now and do that trip with your husband for three years, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. a lot more time than simply going around the world, um, and you were going to sell everything and gather your all of your, you know, your cash, how much money would you need in order to do this? For three years, mm -hmm. I would save what we saved before, which was $70,000. And as mm -hmm. I've said, you know, we came back with some of that money. We didn't spend all of it. But, you know, the beauty of traveling long term in a slow way is that there are so many opportunities to travel very inexpensively or to volunteer, to house sit you know, to do like worldwide organic farming, couch surfing. So if you want to be creative, you can get by with a smaller amount of money. So $70,000 is what I would save for another three-year trip around the world. And probably the majority of your time was spent in countries in the developing world, which are half the price of the United States or less. We spent some time in Europe, but we did consider, you know, that we would want to travel in places that wouldn't be as expensive as the U.S., when we were in the U.S., we were camping, so that was cheaper. I'm so envious of you and your rickshaw run, and it, it, <laughs> I'm just kind of frustrated right now because I'm trying to figure out an eight-day vacation with my kids that we try to do every year, and, and I'm really frustrated because where can we go that's exciting, but we only have eight days because everybody's got to get back to work. And it, just talking to you right now, Kim, it occurred to me, when you are not shackled by that short time, all of a sudden all sorts of magical travel experiences are possible, but if you got to fly in 
and then ramp it right up really quick and intensely travel for five days and then get home, it costs a lot of money and it just closes the door on a lot of the greatest things about travel. Right, that your ability to be spontaneous is kind of stripped away from Mm -hmm. you at that point. You know, one thing that we did when we were planning the trip was that we sort of purposely tried not to plan too much because we wanted the flexibility of meeting someone and them telling us of a great spot we'd never heard of and to go there. So we didn't want to tie ourselves down with lots of pre-booked things and then be beholden to them. Craig, thanks for your call. Hey, thanks, Rick and Kim. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kim Dinan. Her book is The Yellow Envelope, One Gift, Three Rules, and a Life-Changing Journey Around the World. Hey, Kim, I want to talk a little more about the experiences you had on the road, but talk to me more about this yellow envelope. I noticed in the very back of the book there actually is a yellow envelope. What's the story of the envelope, and and why is that important? Well, right before my husband and I left on this trip, uh, some friends of ours gave us a gift, a going-away present, and it was a yellow envelope. And inside the envelope there was a check and instructions to give the money away as we traveled. And there were three rules. Don't overthink it, which we did every single time. Mm -hmm. Don't feel pressured to give it all away. And then share our experiences if we want to. And so the book is actually about who we met and who we gave the money to. And also, you know, the sort of the transformative power of giving and the transformative power of travel. So what's an example? How did that money have an impact? And was it enjoyable to give it away? Well, you know, it was a lot harder than we thought it would be. You know, when we originally received the gift, we thought, oh, what a blessing. And it was a blessing. But some things that we didn't anticipate were that, you know, we didn't speak the language of most of the people that we were giving the money away to. So we thought, you know, how do we explain this, uh, Hmm. you know, that we're just giving the money? And and we also didn't understand culturally what would be acceptable. You know, Hmm. in the U.S., if I wanted to give someone money, I would know kind of what to say and do so that it would be received and understood. But we didn't have that knowledge in, in other countries. And so what we ultimately ended up doing we used it sort of as a way to say thank you f- to the people that we met, you know, in every country that just welcomed us into their homes. Or one day in India, uh, a friend of mine, we had kind of haggled with a rickshaw driver and hired him to kind of give us this tour around town. And as we were, were driving around, we were in Hampi. As we were driving around the potholed streets, the windshield of his rickshaw just exploded. (laughs) And, you know, the glass went everywhere. And it's not like this kind of safety glass we have in the U.S. It was like these shards of glass. He was bleeding. And, and, you know, we learned that it wasn't his rickshaw. He he was just renting it. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, we paid him for his job of driving us around and then kind of slipped him some extra money to fix his windshield in his rickshaw. So it was things like that, um, you know, people that we met who've welcomed us into their home. We yeah, your, your some... husband and you must have looked at each other and thought, hey, yellow envelope time, this man needs a new windshield. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you know, what I found is, and I think that this is true anywhere, you know, if you really pay attention to the times when you're able to kind of help in any kind of way, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be money, those opportunities are everywhere. And having a yellow envelope, it just made me really... It kept my eyes open. It made me pay attention because I always considered myself the conduit for this gift. Mm. You know, it wasn't my money. I was just the person who was supposed to be kind of distributing it. So the magic of the yellow envelope, I think, is that when you have it, you're reminded to kind of keep your eyes open and pay attention to how you can do good things. I love that. And when people get your book, they get that envelope in the back. And I suppose uh, you're hoping that they will be a conduit also. Absolutely. You said uh, when you dropped this bombshell on your husband, he agreed to go along. It 
sounded like he was, uh, <laughs> okay, I'm, uh, I guess I'll go with you. After three years, uh, you mentioned in your book that part of the agenda was to explore your marriage. Um, uh-huh. Could you explore your marriage to the point where you could actually hurt it? I mean, was it a good idea? Did you learn any lessons for couples on the road? Uh, how did that all work out? I mean, it really took our marriage to the brink, and we actually separated for a short time while we were on the road. (laughs) But what happened was, ultimately, it made us so much stronger. You know, traveling independently and together, we gained a lot of confidence, which we still have today, Hmm. and we learned to work well as a team. Hmm. But at first, you know, the roles that we had kind of settled to into our marriage were all kind of stripped from us. And the support systems that we had, you know, friends and coworkers and people that we just spent time with, all of those people are suddenly gone and you're with this person 24 hours a day. Hmm. So it was an adjustment to kind of learn how to ask for the time that we needed, you know, Hmm. together and apart. Mm -hmm. And then once I think we worked through that and some deeper sort of underlying things in our marriage Mm -hmm. as well, you know, we really came out the other side I feel like there's nothing that could bring us down now. <laughs> wow. See, that's a very powerful souvenir right there. And Kim, I understand you walked on the community Santiago, and that's, uh, you know, with thousands of pilgrims who walk across Europe as they have for centuries going to Santiago de Compostela in the northwest of Spain. And I've never met anybody who did that walk that didn't find it transformative. What was your experience like on the community Santiago? That was an amazing experience, and it was something, again, that I did on my own. My husband wasn't with me at that time, and I really wanted to prove to myself that I could take a big adventure on my own. And the Camino seemed like the perfect thing to do, and I'd always wanted to do it. And, you know, you hear, I hear people say this all the time, and the same was true of me, that once I started thinking about the Camino, it kind of popped up everywhere. And they say that the Camino kind of gives you what you need. And it absolutely did that for me. You know, it gave me time to be alone and to think. I made wonderful friends from all over the world. And at the end of the walk, I just really felt so full of joy and pride, knowing that I could kind of navigate Hmm. myself through an entire country on foot. I mean, of course, there were yellow arrows to follow, so it would have been sort of hard to get lost. But moving at three miles an hour is a magical thing for days and days at a time. Everything slows down. You have everything you need on your back. And if the Camino is calling you, listen to the call and do what you can to get there. So three years, $70,000, all sorts of um, tug-of-wars with your husband and lessons learned and so on. You come back home living happily ever after? What's going on now after this when you look back on? uh, Are are you settled back down? Where are you at right now? We came back three years later. I was pregnant with our daughter who just turned two. So now we are parents. We are settled down, um, but I have hopefully another adventure planned, which I will write about with my next book, which is about adventuring as a mother. So the adventures are not over. When you look back, Kim, Was it time and money well spent? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. No regrets. The best money we've ever spent. The best thing I've ever done with our lives. It changed everything for us. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Kim Dynan. Her book is The Yellow Envelope, One Gift, Three Rules, and a Life-Changing Journey Around the World. Kim Dynan, thank you for, uh, (laughs) for inspiring a lot of people who need that little kick to get out there and, and give themselves that chance to, to embrace the world and come home and be better for it. Happy travels. Yeah, thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton, and our team includes Isaac Kaplan-Wilner and Kaz Hall. 
We had editing support this week from Sarah McCormick. America Kitnikone uploads the show to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate relations. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Rick talks with Buffy St. Marie about indigenous identities in North America in an extra to today's show. You can hear it from our website at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.